Okay, friends, we're going to start tonight, and for the next five weeks, we're going to go through the story of the Ramayana, having just finished the story of the Mahabharata. The Ramayana is a simpler tale in many ways, no less inspiring, but just a lot less complicated. And it doesn't have all the psychological characters and all the, the double names and all that, you know, this, this means that, and this is what it represents, and and there aren't nearly as many characters, and the stories don't convolute quite as much. So it's much easier to understand, it's easier to tell, it's easier to comprehend, but it's no less inspiring. It's just completely different. So don't, keep, don't expect this one to turn into the other one, because it just won't. Uh, in fact, it's really just a glorious tale of a few main characters. There's another characteristic about the story which is different than the Mahabharata also. In the Mahabharata, you could never forget anybody because they were always sneaking back in at the end, you know, having held on to some point of view for a really long time, waited through all the subsequent events to pounce. In this story, people appear for a while and then they go away and they tend not to come back. So you don't have to worry so much about keeping it all straight in your mind. Um, The basic story is a very simple one, relatively speaking. Um, There was a king, Dasarata. He had three wives. He desired to have sons. Does this sound familiar? And he ended up with four sons. Rama was the oldest. Um, Bharat was the next. Lakshman and um, Shatrugna. Did I say that correctly? I think. And they were twins. And I'll explain how they get to be born. But Rama and his three brothers. And Rama's father wants to put him on the throne but one of his wives conspires that that's not going to happen. And instead, Rama and his wife, now Sita, are exiled to the forest for 14 years. There are certain common themes that we see here. Um, Rama is seldom described without also mentioning Sita. Among other things that they represent in this story, they represent this perfect um, marital union, the devoted wife, um, the noble husband. And the image of Rama and Sita is is always a a theme throughout all of uh, Indian culture, the perfect wife, the perfect husband. So, Because when Rama is exiled, Sita refuses to let him go without her. And then brother Lakshman also insists on going. So the three of them, Lakshman protecting Rama and Sita, Sita serving her husband for being with him for better or worse, and Rama as the divine incarnation. Their whole life is really about Rama being incarnated because he had a job to do to defeat evil. This is, again, the same theme that we've been through in the Mahabharata because that's why um, God takes human form, that when virtue declines and vice predominates, I, the infinite Lord, take visible form. That's what uh, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita. So in this story also, evil was gaining ascendancy and so the, the devout prayers of those who were suffering from the evil brought the incarnation of Rama into being. So everything that happens in the story is just to put Rama in the right relationship to the evil character that he eventually has to destroy. And that evil character is Ravana. And Ravana has ten heads, and he's really mighty and powerful. And Ravana steals Sita. And he steals her away, he abducts her, and he takes her away. Rama does not know where she has gone. She knows, he knows at first only that she has disappeared. Ravana desires to have Sita as his wife, 
but instead of imposing himself upon her by force, he wants to win her. And he believes, he's foolish enough to believe that his wealth and his power and the threat of uh, her death, if she doesn't cooperate, will be enough to persuade her. So Ram is held prisoner by Ravana for a long period of time. And the way that the geography of it is, is that Ravana has the island of Sri Lanka. So he has a flying car and he takes her there. So she's way out of sight and Rama has a heck of a, chance, a job to find her. And then Sita is sorely tested because Ravana makes her life very difficult and tells her that all of your sorrows will cease if you just take me as a husband. Your foolish husband is never going to find you and here I am and we could have such a great life together. And Sita remains absolutely firm to her commitment to Rama. Eventually, of course, with the help of monkeys and bears, and the most famous being Hanuman, the great monkey, who you remember briefly, Bhima met him in the Mahabharata, because they're half-brothers. Hanuman is the great monkey and the great devotee of Lord Brahma. He represents beautifully just the pure devotion to the Lord. And with the help of, of Hanuman and others of the monkeys and the bears, eventually Rama finds out where Sita is, hidden. He mounts a great assault. He does battle with Ravana, which is what he was born to do. And in the end, of course, evil is defeated. The pure-minded Sita is brought back with Rama, and then they return to their kingdom, the 14 years of exile being over. And in essence, that's the story. Sometimes the story ends where Rama and Sita get to live happily ever after. Sometimes the story ends where People doubt whether Sita has been loyal and pure to Rama. And then in, um, uh, in honor of the fact that he's a king and he can't only choose his own happiness, he sends Sita away. And because in honor of the fact that he's the king and he can't think only of his own happiness but of the position that he's in, he tests Sita even though her purity is proven she isn't, she, she has to just give up and go away. And then she just goes back. She, she disintegrates at that point. She goes somewhere else completely. She leaves the planet, is what I mean. She dematerializes. Why the story ends sad in some versions, as Swamiji says, because there is no happy ending on this planet. The only happy ending we ever have is in the Lord. But different versions have you end it different ways. <laughs> so we'll probably go for the sad ending. In this play, <laughs> but if you prefer the happy ending, you can take it. In this story, not everybody ends up dead, just so you'll know. you know. Eventually, everybody does, of course, but this one is not nearly as much about um, that fight to the death that the Mahabharata is about. Okay? So that's the general outline of the story. So, um, let me think a few things that I want to say. This story, and I mistakenly said at the beginning that Vyasa wrote both the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, which is just a, a, a non-fact that I make up every so often to say because I get confused, but he didn't. This, the first writing down of the Ramayana was by a sage called, a poet called Valmiki, and that was said to be the first time the story was written down. Then subsequently Tulsi Das and uh, a few others have written the story, famous ones. The latter ones are more devotional epics. The one that Valmiki wrote is more just the story as it's told. And it's said that the sage Narada came to visit Valmiki, and Valmiki asked him, who is the most noble uh, man who has ever lived? 
and Narada suggested to him that Lord Rama was the one, and Narada divining the future intention of this. And then after Narada and uh, Valmiki have this conversation about who is the most noble man who ever lived, Valmiki goes off to um, do his uh, rituals by the river, and he sees two lovebirds in the uh, tree, and then a hunter shoots one of those birds, and Valmiki is so... um, stricken by what he seems to be such an unsportsmanlike thing to do is to kill a pair, one one half of the pair of birds, that he issues a curse against the hunter, as they're always doing. He issues a curse. But he's struck by the poetic meter of the curse that he spontaneously issued. And so he goes back to his ashram and he's, he's contemplating why he was moved to that flash of anger because it, it, it seemed a little extreme, the anger that he felt. But he keeps also hearing the, the poetic rhythm of the curse he spontaneously uttered. And then it occurs to him that it's the poetic rhythm of that curse is exactly the right rhythm for the writing of the story of this great man of the Ramayana. Now, I don't know why people tell these stories like this, but there's, here's an interesting just sort of way to look at it. If you really think of the epics as having this extraordinarily purpose, I was reflecting on this earlier. Um, this is a story from Thailand. From There's a golden Buddha in the city of Bangkok. It's a very large Buddha, and it's made out of gold. And it's, it's really quite an impressive piece of art. And it's big, and it's in this shrine area. It's, it's, it's not gigundous, but it's big. It's bigger than we are. It's not 40 times bigger than we are, like some of their Buddhas are, but it's still solid. The story of that golden Buddha is this, that at some point, whenever it was made, and some centuries ago, and they know their own history of wars and invasions and so on, um, that golden Buddha was inside the city, but some barbarous herd was coming, horde was coming to invade the city, so the ruler had the golden Buddha encased in, in cement and plaster, whatever the, that was, and he had it just moved out by the riverbank. And what happened was the barbarous hordes succeeded in defeating the king and perhaps killing him, but this just looked like to everyone to be like a plaster statue of a Buddha out there, and so nobody disturbed it. And it apparently sat there for quite a long time. And then... Um, some ruler decided that it was an undignified place for the Buddha to be sitting and wanted to move it more into the center of the city. So he made arrangements for it to be moved, and it was a very heavy statue, and it was very big, and it had to be put on ropes and pulleys and wagons and animals pulling the wagons, and it was just a gigantic project. And when they were some distance toward the city, some aspect of the engineering failed. And all of a sudden, they're watching the Buddha go over like this. And it hits the ground, and it cracks. This is all true, and it cracks. And when it cracks, they realize that it's solid gold underneath, which nobody knew. And they would not have known it if it had been successfully moved. The only way they knew it is because it fell over. Now, that story to me has always been extremely interesting because I think about how they needed somebody, an engineer, to move that, who had the chutzpah to try, but wasn't quite capable of doing the job. (laughs) 
because it was necessary for it to fail. Because if it hadn't failed, then no one would ever have discovered what was inside. I mean, there's other metaphors you can draw from it, but that's always my favorite. Now, coming back to Valmiki and him cursing the birds, one of the most difficult um, aspects of human life is guilt and shame, anxiety over our failures, worshiping our mistakes, being unable to just allow the ups and downs of life to just flow. We become very nervous. We're, we're um, incapable of expressing ourselves or our talents. Uh, we're always anxious about what's going to happen because of this fear that it might not come out exactly right. So this whole story starts with Valmiki losing his temper and then sort of wondering why he lost his temper. But he, the way he reflects on it is interesting. He wonders why he lost his temper. Why was he moved to curse like that? And then he realizes that out of that, this um, spontaneous uh, rhythmic verse came. And from that rhythmic verse, he's going to be able to write the entire Ramayana. And it's, um, it's a deeply important spiritual lesson, not only to be able to rise and triumph when things go well, but to move forward without hesitation when things are going badly. And I think, again, of the engineer and the Buddha, to be fearless of, what the heck, let's try it. Because you never really know if it cracks whether or not it's just trying to uncover something that's better. Um, so um, perhaps that's the reason, who knows. Um, what they, um, he, as he put it, why was I deceived by my emotion? That's how Valmiki put it, which is a very interesting way to say it. Why did the emotion come in and des- deceive my judgment? It caused me to issue a curse like that. Um, so now let me... Uh, the whole story of the Ramayana also takes place at a transition time in the yugas, but in a different transition. This is from Treta Yuga, descending, when it um, shifts into Dwapar Yuga. So we're going from a very high age into um, still a much higher age than we've experienced. We're at the beginning of Dwapar Yuga on this side, so we don't really have any idea where we're going with Dwapar Yuga and what it's going to be like. The age of Rama is always described as the golden age of perfect harmony. And in fact, the way the story is told that Toward the end of Rama's reign, he heard a fish, a fishmonger arguing with his wife. And then Aram knew that the golden age had ended. Because prior to that time, there would have never been a dispute between a husband and a wife. Because it was simply a harmonious world. So the whole world that Rama and Sita lived in was this one of perfect harmony. Of course, Ravana was there, so there must have been something spoiling the soup a little bit. But nonetheless, it was a very high age of, of great nobility. Not at, not at all like where Krishna came. But the avatars come to transition these ages each time. You know, and it's, it must be really depressing to be an avatar in a descending age. <laughs> I would think about Jesus. My gosh, you had to think things are bad now and think how much worse they'll get. I think of the uh, story Swami tells about the meditating yogis who are buried really deep in the mud, who are uncovered by the builders. One, the one meditating yogi, I'm thinking there are two stories. And he comes out and he's speaking ancient Sanskrit. And they, he asks, what yuga is it? They say, Kali yuga. He says, I am not interested. <laughs> you know, it's like, why would I want to live here during Kali yuga? I asked Swamiji once when we were having a conversation 
the conversation started out somewhat humorously. We were somewhere, and the atmosphere was uncongenial to our spirits. And I said, Swamiji, the next time we come back, let's at, let's at least wait for Satya Yuga. Swami said very emphatically, I do not intend to come back like that. And I said, he said, because even in the highest age, he said, it's still the material plane. And I said, but well, he said, the only difference is, he said, people like us are in charge. That's how he put it. And I said, so the whole world is like Ananda. He said, yes, actually. You know, just the whole planet operates on high principles with harmony and with divine understanding. But he said, it's still the material plane. You're still not free. Every so often he adds, well, if I could help people, I will come back. (laughs) He sort of says almost, I'm exaggerating, but he says, you know, oh, rats, I know my own nature. (laughs) I said to him that, well, that's the only reason you came this time, isn't it? He said, well, yes, there is that. That was where it got left. All right. So um, they also want us to understand that there are all these different beings involved, as there usually are, that the devas are generally considered to be godlike creatures who revere dharma. They're higher creatures. They're not human beings. They're not exactly angels because it's not like they float around in light and sort of work on this plane. They're just higher beings, you might say, from a higher planet. Who knows? And then there's the Ashuras and the Rakshashas, who are generally regarded as wicked, with no regard for Dharma. Except what they say here, which is really very interesting, even among the bad races, there are occasionally good people. And even among the good races, there are occasionally bad people. That nothing is really as clear-cut as that, and that the law of karma applies to everyone. You know, that people can do austerities and get boons from the gods, because that's... You can do tapas and make things happen. Um, and sometimes, you know, the devas just do shockingly bad things, as, they, as the author of the book puts it. When the devas do bad things, everybody's horrified. The rakshashas can do those things all the time, and nobody even thinks odd about it. And it's an interesting actual just observation, because when a good person does something even slightly wrong, everybody, you know, reacts with horror. And sometimes the people who react with the greatest horror are the worst people who just regularly do bad things. But it's not shocking if it's done by a bad person. But what, what really the, the, the epics are about, the Mahabharata and this one also, is just really showing us the flow of life. That people have strengths, people have weaknesses, that sometimes we have times when things go well and other times we have times when we struggle, that we have dark hours and that we persevere against that and then eventually... Everything resolves. It doesn't necessarily resolve to our absolute ease and pleasure, but it always resolves. I was, uh, but that the, that, but that if we face things, you know, with courage and with faith in God, it always tends to work out better. I was giving Sunday service elsewhere on the weekend. I was up at Ananda Village, and I was telling the story, which I've sometimes told here, that advice I often give people is, simply this, when they tell me their tale of woes, I said, oh, don't worry, something will happen. And people will say, oh, well, you mean it'll all work out? No, actually, but something will happen. (laughs) Because something always happens. (laughs) Nothing is ever static. So we just worry, you know, so much, and we're just so anxious about this. Oh, don't worry, it'll change. It'll change for better or worse, but there's no point in really getting really totally invested in this. And even, you know, the story of Sita, She's there with Ravana. She's trapped in the garden. He's 
just his, she, he, she's surrounded by horrible rakshashas. She doesn't know what's going to happen. But something happens. It always does. Everything progresses because this world never stays the same, ever. It just is like that. I, I mean, this is complete digression, but because I have five weeks, I can digress. Um, when we drove up to Ananda Village and back this time, David and I listened to an audio book, really interesting story. It's called Miracle in the Andes. And it's the story you may all remember from the 1970s. Um, a, a, a rugby team from Uruguay was going from Uruguay to Chile, I think, for a, a match, and the plane crashed into the mountain. And it was presumed that everyone was killed. It was about 40 or 50 people, mostly the young men who were on the team, plus a few of their friends and relatives. And uh, about half the people were killed instantly as soon as they crashed. But the other half, some 20-some, mostly young men, um, survived. And they, they, lived se- they survived 72 days in the, at, at 12,000 feet in the Andes with almost nothing. And... Uh, they sort of, there was a piece of the airplane. It was an incredible story. And they survived. At a certain point, they were starving to death, and they realized that all the bodies out there were protein. And so they made the conscious decision to consume the carcasses of everybody else who had died. You know, it became an issue when they came back. It's interesting. The Catholic Church had to issue that it was okay for them to have done that because it was it would have been more... Um, more against God's will to allow themselves to die than to have refrained by nurturing, nurturing themselves that way. But of course, everyone thought they were dead. And the story is about this man named Fernando, who was absolutely convinced that they would never be found, and the only way they would ever get out of there is, to, is that one or two of them had to walk out from there, which eventually he did with another man named Roberto. And they went from 12,000 feet, they climbed a 17,000-foot pike in the Andes, went down the other side, took them 12 days, and walked out of there after 60 days of, of living there. I mean, an amazing story. But, but it, it gives you so much uh, confidence in the fact that you can face and do anything. It's really, it's really a very inspiring story. I highly recommend it. That's why I'm speaking about it. It's a little bit hard in places, but you know, this, he's a really noble man. And then the way he writes about what he learned and what they all learned from it. But what, and this is how it relates to this story. He was partly inspired by a story his father had always told him, where his father had been in a, a, a one-person rowing race. And, you know, sports were of great importance. And he and his opponent, his father and his opponent, were both just, you know, inch by inch. And his father was just exhausted and in terrible pain, you know, just like this. And he looked over and he saw that his opponent felt just like him. You know, they were both just at the end of their strength. And then the father thought, I can suffer for a little bit longer. And then he just pulled a little bit harder and won. And then when Fernando was up in the mountain and had to just live day after day, and then had to walk out. He just kept saying that to him, so I can suffer for one more day. And I, I was actually thinking about that a lot when I was reading this story, about, you know, Rama being exiled to the forest, which we'll talk about in a moment, and then Sita being taken away, and then Sita having to face Ravana. You know, you really only have to hold on for just one more, you just have to just hold on for one more minute. 
Master tells a horrifying story about a disciple who left the path, who he said if she had held on for 24 more hours, she would have been done with the karma forever, the worldly karma that drew her away. And so these, yeah, I know, whoa, why didn't you tell me? Um, so these ethics really have a lot to tell us just about courage and endurance, and, and they come back in real stories like the ones I've just been talking about. Okay, so now. Now we come to the Ramayana. There was a great king, and his name was Dasarata. And remember in this story, people don't come back as often as they do, so, and there aren't as many characters. And he, his city was called Ayodhya. Ayodhya means invincible. When Swami Kriyananda bought the piece of land where he put his own house at Ananda, he called it Ayodhya, the golden land of Ayodhya. And it also means powerful and invincible. Everything about Dasarata's life was just perfect, except he had no sons. And for a king, having no sons is a really a great... Um, actually, it's irresponsible for a king not to have sons because the kingdom has to progress in an orderly way. And if a king dies without sons, there's no one to take it over. And it, it turns, it creates chaos in the kingdom. So even though it's personal ambition that they want to have sons, it was also genuinely their responsibility to have sons. In the life of Henry I, um, Swami Kriyananda in the previous incarnation who came right after William, he was William's son. The fact that Henry I's son was killed in a drowning accident in a boat that sank and there was no son put the country into a state of chaos for, you know, I think almost 15 or 20 years before someone was able to take over again. So it's part of their responsibility to make sure the lineage is secure. It's not just egoic on their part. Um, so he decided that because he had three wives and he still hadn't been able to produce a son, that he would have a big fire ceremony. And this great um, sage called uh, Rishra Shringa, it doesn't matter. There's a great story told about him, but I'm not going to tell him about it. But he was a very noble and a good man, and it was understood that if he would come and he would conduct the ceremony, his tapasya and the purity of his consciousness, his tapas would be able to draw the power down that would result in overcoming this karma and that the sons would be able to be born. Um, There's always these stories in all of the epics about how even when you have worldly desires, you turn toward the divine and you try to attune yourself with divine energy. Um, Purushottama, in his book about the yugas, talks about this in a most interesting way. And if you haven't read his book about the yugas, I highly recommend it. Because he talks about first... You have to go through the book in sequence, and you have to last through the whole book. First, he talks about where we're going now up into the ascending age and what we'll find at the peak. But then he talks about what the descending age was like. And he talks about how rituals and um, what people call magic was really just the memory of when people used to live in harmony with all those forces. And they they used to be able to live in complete harmony with the power of nature, and then gradually they kind of lost the ability to do that. And so then they tried to force it by systems where what used to be spontaneous, they'd have to find ways to make it work. And so when we come down by now, which is Treta Yuga just about to go into Dwapara Yuga, we still have some of that capacity, but it takes the, the, the very pure, the very great sages who still have that power to be in tune with the universe 
in order to change the material world. Whereas in higher ages, it's not even like, it's not even that everybody could change the material world, it's just everybody lived in harmony. When Swami talks about in the Time Tunnel book, and he takes us to a higher age, just in that book is fiction, but he's playing out of intuition. One of the absolutely charming parts about it is you don't need screens for your windows because the insects and the humans all live in harmony. And we all coexist, but we don't invade each other's spaces. And, and that was just like a way of saying that we're not at war with our own world. So this great sage comes, and they do this um, big fire ceremony. And meanwhile, while this fire ceremony is happening, up in the heavenly realms, the devas, who are the advanced beings, are appealing to um, Lord Brahma, Indra, the king of the devas, is asking. And he's saying that, you know, there was a... uh, Uh, an evil man, Ravana, Rakshasha, who did a tremendous amount of tapasya and did so much tapasya that Brahma gave him a boon, which says that he can't be killed by the devas or the asuras or other Rakshashas. But he's become so powerful that he's absolutely tyrannizing everyone. Nobody can stand up against him and his evil power is growing. So the devas appeal to the Lord and they say, we have to do something to um, stop him. And they point out that um, Ravana never thought that man was significant enough for him to include him in his boon, that he can't be killed, that the only thing that can really kill him is a man, and therefore the divine Lord needs to incarnate in some form, in some human form, for the purpose of eliminating this evil man. So at the same time that Dasaratha is propitiating Uh, carrying out this ceremony, propitiating the divine forces to get sons in the heavenly realm, the devas are conferring with the Lord and they're saying, you've got to send someone. So, of course, this all comes to a perfect combination. And when the fire ceremony reaches its final conclusion, materializing out of of the fire is a, a powerful divine being who's holding in his hand a golden dish with a silver top and inside of it is this elixir. And that is handed to the king. And the king is told, feed this divine elixir in here to your wives, and that will allow them to conceive the sons that you want. So he has three wives. His oldest wife, his first wife is Koshalya. And so he takes what's in the bowl, and he divides it in half, and he gives her half of it. And then he takes what's left again, and he divides that in half, and... um, he gives it to just he gives it to her name is Sumitra, his second wife, and then he divides what's left again in half, and he gives that portion to Kaikei. And I, do I have that correct? And then what the little bit that's left after that he gives back to, to Sumitra again, and then in due time, so Sumitra gets two portions. Half of it is, and then the, and the first wife gives birth to Rama. The second wife gives birth to twins, who are Shatrugna and Lakshman. And the third wife gives birth to Bharat, Bharata. Okay? So now he has four sons. And they say, in proportion to the amount of elixir that each of them drank, is the degree to which the divine was manifest. Except, there's nothing 
you don't have portions of the infinite. You, so any, any fragment of infinity is the whole infinity. So they're all considered to be divine incarnations, but the story is really more about Rama. Now, the boys grow up. We don't know much about their growing up. They just apparently grow up, and they grow up very well. And then one day, at Dasarathas palace, there's a great commotion because this sage Vishwamitra is coming to visit. And when a sage comes to visit, you always have to be really alert because they always have a temper, and they're often coming to test you for some reason or another. So as soon as one of these great sages comes, everybody goes to as be as gracious and as generous as they can. So Dasarata um, gets off of his, um, gets down from his throne and he goes personally out to meet Vishwamitra. And he says, uh, let's, just a moment, let me get, get this right here. Okay, Vishwamitra, I'll tell you a little bit about him first. He's a very famous and powerful sage for these reasons. But he hasn't always been a sage like this. He started out his life as a king. And he was a powerful king. And he chanced to visit the ashram of another sage named Vasishta. You know, we remember we, I was remembering this. In, in Rishikesh, beyond Rishikesh, we go to the place called Vasishta Gufa, which is the cave of Vasishta. He's said to have meditated there for a long time. That's where the name of it comes from, an extremely powerful place. So who knows? Maybe that's the place where this took place. Who knows? But he, Vishwamitra, as a king, visits the ashram of Vasishta. And there he sees this beautiful cow. And this cow is capable of manifesting whatever it's going to manifest. Anything that you desire and ask of it, this cow can manifest. So Vishwamitra, being rather proud of being a king, he says, what does an ascetic need with this cow? He says, this is the kind of thing that belongs to a king. So he grabs the cow and has his army and his men, and they're going to take her away. But the cow has feelings, and she knows that she's being stolen away from the rishi that she loves. So she sets up a, a terrible noise. And uh, the Vasishtha hears this, and he says to the cow, bring forth an army. So she brings forth an army, and that army turns on Vishwamitra as a king and just wipes out his whole army. It's just all finished like that. And um, Vishwamitra is completely disgraced. And he says, you know, I went to just take a cow from a mere rishi, and he had so much more power than me. And he really begins to question his whole position here. And he decides that he needs to develop that kind of power. So he goes off to the Himalayas. But his goal is not a noble one. He wants to have enough power to be able to defeat this rishi because this rishi has humiliated him. So he does penance because even if our motives are not entirely good, we can still activate the divine forces. What I was starting to say earlier when I got distracted is the epics are all about where power comes from. And even if we're drawing that power for wrong purpose... Still, I, when I asked Swami about this once, he says, well, you get in the habit of looking toward the divine. This is the memory of higher ages. And also, we have this constant story of if you have a strong desire, then you, you do tapasya, you focus your energy, you put your will behind it, 
And then that in itself becomes pleasing to the gods and they help you. So he prayed um, to Shiva to be given enough power to be able to defeat Vasishtha. So Shiva granted his boon and he had mastery over every weapon there is. This is Vishwamitra he got from Shiva. So he goes back to that ashram and now he has all this power and as soon as they see him coming, all of Asishtha's disciples just flee because they can see that this man is really powerful and they don't feel that they can stand up against him. But Vishwamitra was completely at ease and he stood with his danda, with his holy staff like this. And Vishwamitra started attacking him with all of these weapons that he'd gained from Shiva. And whatever weapon he threw at Vasishtha, Asisha just drew it into his staff and it was just neutralized immediately like that. And uh, obviously the symbology of that is that no matter what the world can hurl at us, the danda represents the power of the spine, that all forces, all forces can just be absorbed into the inner fire, into the inner light, that nothing that happens to us in an external way really has to affect us if we hold strong to that staff and then just draw everything into that light. Now, um, Vishwamitra is like, again, he's just completely bewildered by this. He said, all the powers, all the warlike powers of a kshatriya that I did all this tapasya to gain, still this rishi just takes them all into his staff. It just doesn't mean anything to him. So he said, I need to become like him. So he goes off and does a whole lot more tapasya, just a whole lot more of it. And finally, they call him a Rajarishi, and he's a king among rishis, but that's not as strong as Vasishtha, so he stays to do it more. And then this other little story comes in. There was a king, and his name was called Trishanku, and he decided he wanted to go to heaven in his physical body. Sometimes that means that you want to die consciously. In other words, you want a high state of consciousness. But they tell the story, just like he wanted to go to heaven in his physical body. So he goes to Vasishtha with this desire. I mean, here's this king. He has all this power, and he goes to this sage, and he, he wants this to happen. But Vasishtha said, don't do that. That's a bad desire. I'm not going to help you to do it. And so the king is very outraged, and he goes to the sons of Vasishtha, and he tries to persuade them to help him, and they become very upset with him. They say, well, not only are you not going to be able to take that noble king's body to heaven with you, but we're going to spoil even that body, and they curse him. And all of a sudden, instead of being the king that he was, he becomes an untouchable. He just becomes a dark and ugly being, and he's not recognized by his own courtiers, and he's just put out on the street. So he became very upset, and he went to Vishwamitra. I'm going to find somebody else to help me to tell the whole story. Now the author of the Ramayana says that sages have two problems. One is they flash to anger too much, and the other is they back the wrong horse sometimes. (laughs) They become too sympathetic. So that's how they describe this one. So he says that he's going to, um, that Vish, uh, Vishwamitra says he has the power to do this, and if Asishtha can't do it, I can do it. So he starts this uh, yagya, this fire ceremony, and he, he starts making this great uh, force, and uh, 
just a, a second. But he invokes the devas, he invokes the power of the astral worlds, but no one responded to this wish. And then Vishwamitra said, look, if no one is going to help me, I'm going to transfer to this man in this form all the power that I have, and I'm going to send him up to heaven. So they start sending him up to heaven in this physical form. This is how the story is told. But he gets close to heaven, and the devas said, there's no way he can come here. So he begins to go back down again. And then Vishwamitra says, yes, he is. He's going to go up. And finally, he gets stuck, is how they describe it, just stuck right in the middle. Now, Vishwamitra says, well, if he can't go into the heaven where Indra lives, I'm just going to create a new heaven right here. And he starts just reinventing, recreating everything that was being denied to him. And finally, the devas say, stop, stop. You know, we'll make peace with you because he's beginning to destroy the whole order of the world here with his anger and with his power. So he agrees. Trishenka gets what he wants. And, but Vishwamitra has spent all his tapasya again. All this effort that he's put out, he's just spent it on this sort of essentially worthless effort. But he manifests all this power to do it. What is the deeper meaning of these stories? You can kind of guess a little bit. Anything is possible with the power of the will, but not everything is worth doing, you know? And then he spends his tapasya in this foolish way, really, having transferred it all to this man who has this ridiculous desire, but he can still do it. So he just has to go back and start doing more austerities. So he gets... Brahma's attention, he gets the Lord's attention every so often, but he still is not as powerful as Vasishtha, and this is what he wants to be. And the devas decide to test him. And the way they describe this in the story, it's very interesting that very often, it's not the demons that will interrupt your tapasya or the demons who will interrupt your, your ceremony. Sometimes it's the devas because um, they don't like to have their power challenged. They say one thing, or the other is they're, they're testing you to see how really firm you're going to be. They're on your side, but part of the way they're on your side is they, 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 they force you to be more powerful. So that's why when things go wrong, it's not always that God is trying to stop you. Sometimes he's just wanting to see how serious you are and how hard you're going to work for this. So the Davis sent a beautiful uh, damsel to Vishwamitra to see if they could lure him off his austerities. So Manaka comes and she manages to entrance him. So for 10 years, Vishwamitra forgets about all his austerities, and he just lives with this beautiful damsel. And then one day he woke up and realized, what am I doing here? Now, the obvious purpose of this story is very obvious. Sometimes we fall prey to temptation. We live with that temptation for a period of time. Even as great a sage as Vishwamitra fell into temptation, but when he woke from it, he just turned his back and went back to what his true intention was. So all of this is so that we don't feel so bad about ourselves. They say for a thousand years he did tapas. And he came to a very high state, but, but Brahma wanted him to, is this enough? And Vishwamitra said, do I have complete control over my senses? No, Brahma said, there's more. So he said, That's, that nothing will satisfy me until I have mastery. So then they sent him another damsel. But this time, he looked at her, and he became so angry at her for tempting him that she was turned to stone for 10,000 years. (laughs) 
Poor thing. <laughs> okay. Finally, his tapasya had reached such a fevered pitch. They said that smoke and flames were emanating from his body, and he was becoming so powerful that he threatened to destroy the whole world. And finally, he, the Brahma said to him, you have attained, you are the equal of Vasishtha. And uh, then he said, well, I won't believe it until Vasishtha himself tells me. So he went to Vasishtha, who acknowledged him as an equal, and then finally it was over. Now, this is the sage that is at Dasarata's court right now. So with all this story behind him, and everyone knows who this guy is, Dasarata is really eager to win his favor. So he comes down off his throne, he greets him there, and the first thing he says is, whatever is in my power to give you, I will give you. That's a very noble thing to say, and a courageous thing to say, because he doesn't really know what the sage is going to ask of him. But he makes that promise because he's a noble man, and this this is the right thing to do. And he's very pleased that Dasaratha had the courage to make that offer before he heard the question. These are very interesting examples for our lives. You know, I've it's a very small thing, but I, I make a habit when someone calls and says, will you do me a favor? I always say, yes, of course. And I actually got it partly out of this story. Instead of saying, well, what is it? You know, it's a very, it's like if somebody asks something of you, can you, will you just say yes? Or do you have to know and then think about it and wonder whether you have the energy and if it, you know, like this. It's, it, these are very good spiritual practices. Remember the whole other story about Karna, whoever came after his noon worship, whoever came and asked a boon of him at that point, it was his commitment that he would give that boon. The only person he denied was his mother when she wanted him to give up his loyalty to Duryodhana. Then he couldn't do it. But then, of course, he made her the promise that he would not kill any of the others except one. So she would still have five sons. But, but the nobility of souls is often demonstrated by their willingness like that, that they make the promise first. They don't ask first, can I afford it? Do I have enough time? I mean, I don't go to perfect strangers and offer my word like that, but I try, at least, when anybody calls me to say yes first. Why would I not do you a favor? It's just a, it's just a way of turning your mind so that you're not always calculating your own position and feeling yourself limited and wondering, you know, can I do this? No, of course I can do this. A friend has asked me. The answer is yes. Now, what is the rest of the question? And so Dasarata goes to Vishwamitra and says... If, Whatever it is, if it's in my power to give you, I will give it. So Vishwamitra says that he has been doing a certain yagya, a certain fire ceremony he's been doing, but there are two rakshashas, one named Marichi and the other one named Subahu, but you don't have to remember their names because people come in and out of the story and then they're gone. Okay, And just as he reached a certain point in his yagya where the the fruit of the ceremony was so supposed to take place. These rakshashas were throwing, you know, dead meat and blood and just polluting the whole thing. So he just couldn't bring the yagya to its conclusion because these rakshashas were just destroying it. And then Vishwamitra says to Dasarata, I want your son Rama to come and fight these rakshashas. Dasarata, of course, is a noble king, 
but he's also a father, and Rama is the absolute apple of his eye. He loves all four of his sons, but he loves Rama more. He lives and breathes for this son, who's the perfect son, who's going to be his heir, and everything is as it ought to be. So Dasarata says, he's just 16 years old, he's just a boy, but 16 is the time when, at that, in that age when you could marry when a boy became a man. And he says, I'll come, I'm an experienced fighter, I'll bring my armies, we can certainly do this for you. Vishwamitra says, um, well, you make your promise, and then as soon as it's asked of you, you withdraw. I'm not very impressed. Okay. Now, he's, he talks about, in, in that age, of course, we're coming down from um, Treta Yuga. It's like, if, if king doesn't keep his word, as he says, well, I guess your household will be disgraced forever. Everyone will know you gave your word, but when it came time for you to actually carry through on it, you won't carry through. And that, that's just an unheard of uh, breaking of dharma. And the king just, you know, could hardly bear such a disgrace. At the same time, his fear for his son was also enormous. Now, Vasishtha is there. He's, um, he's in the household of Ayodhya. He, he lives there. He helps the king. And he just turns and he says first to Dasaratra, he said, don't fear, you know, your sons are blessed Nothing will happen. And plus, when they're with this great sage, how could anything happen to them? They'll be fine. So Dasaratra, even though he was terrified by the separation, had no choice but to agree. So they head off. And these two Rakshashas are so powerful because they're minions of Ravana. And Ravana is using all of these minions to disrupt righteousness as much as he can. So if Vishwamitra wants to do a great yagya and create positive force in the world, it's in Ravana's interest to make sure it can't happen. So he sends these two rakshashas. So this is Vishwamitra knowing what Rama's destiny in life is and bringing him forward. Now, Dasarata says, wherever Rama goes, Lakshman always goes with him. Because the, the two twins, Satyagruha has become the inseparable companion of Bharat, and Lakshman has become the inseparable companion of Rama. So every time you hear it, you hear Rama and Sita and Lakshman. In most of the pictures, you see two warriors and the, the wife, Sita, in the middle. And that's how, that's how they always are. So if Rama's going to go, Lakshman's going to go with them. So they head out uh, on this great journey. And, and this is the beginning of Rama's adventures. And the first night, Vishwamitra begins to teach them. And he gives them certain mantras and certain... Uh, rituals that they can do and certain powers he conveys to them. And he gives them the power never um, to be free from fatigue, that you will, you will be tireless from this time onward. And again, we're just sort of hearing all of these possibilities by yogic powers, by the boon given, by mantras. We can overcome all the limitations of our human life. Um, we have Ramas being the Lord incarnate, but also by these methods, he's teaching him that this is possible. So they traveled into a, uh, a forest, and the forest was very dark and very ugly. And Vishwamitra says to them that this used to be a beautiful forest, but it's cursed now by the presence again of um, this, this woman named Tataka. And Tataka had been married to a man, and that man angered the sage Agastya. 
And when Agastya cursed that man and her husband died, um, she became enraged that her husband died. She had been an ordinary woman before, so she attacked Agastya, and he cursed her too to become this monster. So now she hates all men, and she's completely turned this forest into a terrible place. And Lord Rama, he, his, his incarnation is to move through the planet, and wherever there's darkness, he stands up to that darkness, and he defeats it. I mean, this is his soul and simple dharma in life. And he acts with the grace of God fearlessly. And so he takes his bow, and he twangs his bow, and there's a fierce fight, but he kills this cursed woman, and then where this forest was dark and tangled, as soon as she's taken away from it, then it becomes full of life again. And this is such an obvious image. You know, dark forces come. Nothing thrives under that darkness. The presence of the Lord comes and defeats the darkness, and then light comes. So then um, Vishwamitra sees the future of Rama. And Vishwamitra, you know, had gathered all these weapons that he tried to use to to defeat Vasishtha. And he gathered all these mantric powers. And so he sits with Rama and he teaches Rama all of these warlike powers because Vishwamitra no longer needs them and he transfers them over to Rama. So you also have all through this story, you have rishis giving their powers to the people who need them. There's a, uh, this, whole, this transference of energy from one great soul to another. I mean, Rama is considered to be a, an avatar, but in more modern stories where you have an avatar, he has a guru and that, that master transfers to him the powers that he needs. And so Vishwamitra is preparing him for what he needs, giving him the, the powers that he himself has acquired. You know, there's a, uh, there was a very interesting man. He's passed away now. Um, his name was Marcel Vogel. And he was a very, very far-out thinker. He actually was on salary with IBM to do whatever he wanted, but whatever he thought of, they owned. <laughs> it was a perfect solution for him. And so he got a salary to just be a genius. And he would just give them all his ideas. Um, but he, uh, he had a lot of visions and far-out ideas. There, there's a few in the world, there's a few crystal skulls, um, carved, pieces of crystal carved into skulls. Marcel Vogel said, he had a, a vision of these Atlantean temples, and he said that an elder person of wisdom would come and the priest would transfer the consciousness of the elder person into the crystal skull. And then a young person would come and the priest would transfer the, the wisdom of the elder person that was stored in the crystal skull into the young person. There's much more efficient forms of education than the one that we follow. <laughs> okay, let's take a little break. <laughs> so Vishwamitra takes Rama and Lakshmana to the Yagya, and they go through the whole cycle, and they come to the point where the Rakshashas are going to come. And, of course, the Rakshashas come, and Brahma is there, and he pulls out his powerful bow. The bow always represents the spine and the power of meditation, Rakshashas are all the things that tempt us. And one of the, the demons, Maricha, he just hits him with an arrow and throws him a hundred miles away. 
and the other one he kills. And the yagya is saved and it's finished. And so they have done what they came to do. Vishwamitra, of course, is very happy. And he knows who Ratma is and he knows what his future is, so he has one more thing that he needs to do. Now, there is King Janaka, who is also part of this story. King Janaka um, is a, a great Rishi king. And King Janaka also had no children. And so he did a great ceremony in order to get children. And he was plowing the earth for this ceremony. And they say that the, the child that was Sita, the daughter, just came right out of the mother earth as a baby. So Sita is said to have no mother except mother earth. She was just a pure child born of the earth. So she becomes his beloved daughter. And he raises her with great care and great love, and she comes to the age where it's time for her to have a marriage partner. And of course, all fathers think that there's no one worthy of their daughters, but in his case, it was largely true, and he didn't really know exactly what he was going to do, because no ordinary king was going to be a suitable um, husband for a child born in such a miraculous way. So he had been given earlier in his life this powerful bow that it had been, he'd been given to him by the gods. And it was so powerful that no ordinary mortal could string it. So Janaka simply let it be known, King Janaka, whoever can string this bow can have my daughter's hand in marriage. And many, many people came and no one could even come close. So Vishwamitra knows that this bow is there and he knows that, that Sita is destined to be Rama's wife. So he brings her there. And... They stop on the way, and this is how the Ramayana tells us all kinds of other stories. They stop on the way by the side of the Ganges. And so Vishwamitra tells this whole story, which I will now share with you, about how it happened that the Ganges came down from heaven and blessed the earth. So we start by, um, there was the Himavan, the king of the mountains, the Himalayas, of course, had two daughters. And the oldest was the daughter Ganga, She's the, the river, and she goes and lives with the devas. So the Ganga is a heavenly river. It's not really an earthly thing at all. It's the, she's the daughter of the mountain, and the other daughter of Himavan, the king of the mountains, is Uma, and she becomes the bride of Shiva. So it's a pretty auspicious family. Okay. And um, there's a king of Ayodhya, as it happened, and he wanted to have sons, but he wasn't successful in having sons, so he went with his two wives to the mountains, to the Himalayas, and he did tapas for a long time. And finally, they won the favor of the sage Bhrigu. And Bhrigu says to this king, he said, one of your wives will have 60,000 sons, and one of them will have one son. And the one son will be the one who carries on your lineage, and you can decide between you which one is going to have which. So the wives decide between them, and then one in due course does give birth to one son, and the other gives birth, as they say, to a fibrous ball that divides up into 60,000. So there's 60,000 sons. Who knows what any of this means? And then there's another thing that just is so strange. The 60,000 sons grew up strong and handsome. The one son turned out to be a lunatic, a cruel lunatic, However, he dies, and his son is a fine and worthy ruler. There's maybe some symbolism there that you can ask Sai Ganesh afterwards. <laughs> but anyway, that's, who knows? These things just get 
these stories get overlaid. Okay, so then King Sagara decides that he's going to have a, a, a sacrifice that involves a sacrificing the horse, and the horse runs, goes from kingdom to kingdom, and all the emperors and kings that where the horse touches, they all uh, offer obe obeisance to the king who's doing the ceremony. This is one of the sacrifices that they do. But one of the... Um, Indra decided that he didn't want uh, this, this sacrifice to go off successfully. This is like sometimes the gods test the humans or test those who have high ambitions. So he carries the horse off, and he's going to just make it harder. If mortals succeed in defying the gods, the gods are the first to get, grant them boons, but sometimes they make you work for what you get. So the horse's horse was stolen, and, and the king can't do a sacrifice. He has to get this horse back. So he sends his 60,000 sons out to search for this horse. And they go everywhere, and they actually start plowing up the earth looking for this horse. They're just creating chaos everywhere they go. And meanwhile, Indra has taken this horse, and he's taken it down into the nether regions, into the, you know, the underworlds. So they come back, and they haven't been able to find the horse, and the king sends them out again because he's committed himself to doing this. So they finally go down into the nether regions and they see that there's the horse just grazing peacefully there and that they see the meditating rishi, who's, who's not Indra but is a rishi there, and they decide that this must be the thief of this horse. And without even asking who he is, they attack him. And um, the rishi sees them coming and simply opens his eyes and has so much power that he turns them all to ash. All 60,000 of them, zip, ash, just like that. You don't mess with the rishis, really, at all. It's one of the rules of these epics. You see someone you think is a rishi, you tread carefully. <laughs> you know, there's this marvelous factor. This is the first time this comes where the rishi just looks at you and turns you to ash. It's a, it's a, it's a nice thing to know. You know, you can practice See if you can make it work. <laughs> anyway. So, King Sagara just his, you know, he's still waiting, waiting for his 60,000 sons to return with the horse and they're not coming back. So he sends his one son out to go find them. So he manages to find there and he sees the horse in the nether regions and the horse is grazing peacefully and all around are these heaps of ashes Everywhere he looks, there are these heaps of ashes. And he's told that this is what's left of the 60,000. They're just all ashes. And their souls will never rest until the ashes of who they are can be tossed into the Ganges. Except, of course, the Ganges is not there. So he goes back to his father and they just have to live with this tragedy and then the father dies and then the son dies and then the son's son dies. We get several generations down to ba Bhagiratha, king. And still the bodies of these ancestors, the souls are, can't rest because the ashes have not been tossed into the river. They're just still stuck where they're stuck. So he becomes determined that he's going to um, give his ancestors rest by bringing the Ganges to this place. So he goes and he does, does tapasya, 
And all the stories are like that. You want something to happen, you go and you concentrate, and you build energy by doing tapasya. And Lord Brahma comes, and he asks for a son, and then he also asks for the Ganga, for the river Ganges, um, to come down to the nether region so he can wash away the ashes of his ancestors. And Brahma says, okay, but earth itself is not powerful enough if we just took the river Ganges and dropped it from the heavens onto earth, earth itself would shatter. So they have to get the cooperation of Lord Shiva. And so Lord Shiva agrees that he will take the Ganges into his hair, and that will that, that the force of the Ganges will come first into his hair, and then after that it can flow. So she begins to... Um, Ganja, the river Ganja comes out of the heavens, but she has a little bit of pride, and she thinks that Shiva's, you know, weaker than she is, and she's just going to deluge Shiva and just wash him away, too, and take him down to the nether regions, because we attribute to all these divine beings human characteristics. And so Shiva is not going to have none of it, so he just absorbs the entire Ganges into his hair, into his huge matted locks. I don't know what these stories are about, but this is the story so Shiva has all the river Ganges in his matted locks. There's probably something really good here, but I don't know what it is. Okay. So all this is fine, except poor Bhagirata, you know, who's done all this deposit to get the Ganges out of heaven. And now he's got it out of heaven, but it's stuck in Shiva's hair. So what is he going to do about this? And still his poor ancestors, the ashes of his ancestors, are just waiting there to be fixed. So finally, Shiva relents. And so he lets her out in, in seven streams, three streams that go to the east, three streams that go to the west, and one stream that's going to go down to the nether regions to take care of the ancestors. So Bhagaritha is leading him, leading the Ganges in his chariot, and the, the, the river is following behind. And the Ganges gets a little careless, and she knocks over the... Um, sacrifice platform, the yagya, where yagya is going on, of a certain rishi. And rishi just picks up the whole Ganges in his hands and he drinks it. (laughs) So once again, the intention to release the ancestors is thwarted. And so finally, the devas and the rishis ask this rishi, please, you know, this poor man has done all this. We have to take care of these ancestors so that the rishi then lets the Ganges out of his ear. So she's sometimes called, the river is called Janave, which means the daughter of Janu, who was the Rishi, because she went into the Rishi, and then she was born from the Rishi again. So the Ganges comes through the hair of Shiva, then through the the ear of this Rishi, and finally reaches the nether regions, and the ashes of the ancestors are put to rest. So that's the story of how Ganga came to the earth. So now they're still on their way, to um, the city of, uh, where King Janaka lives and where they're going to try to string the bow so that they can win Janaki, she's called, because she's the daughter of Janaka, Sita. And so along the way, they come to a beautiful ashram, but the ashram is absolutely deserted. And this is Rama. I suspect that some of these stories, truthfully... Um, in the story of the life of Jesus, you have the story of where he goes to certain places and meets certain people that he's destined to meet. 
um, the, the well, the um, woman of Samaria, where he goes to the well and he's dis- he sends all his disciples away and he meets this woman and he tests her and when he finds her truthful, she's the one where he says to her, um, I will tell you these teachings, but bring your husband. And she says, um, I have no husband. And then Jesus says to her, you know, you, you're being truthful. You've had five husbands and the man that you're living with is not really your husband. And Master explains that, that this is a fallen disciple that Jesus has gone to meet. And he's testing her to see if she's going to be truthful with him and be willing to um, open herself to him. And once he tests her and she proves open by her truthfulness and her lack of shame before him is what that really means, then he begins to teach her. And she's completely transformed by that. And then Master explains it as a fallen disciple that Jesus went to find. Because even in the Bible, he says, I must, I must needs go to Samaria. Not meaning I'm just going to happen to go there. I have to go there. Because he had to go find that disciple. And then he pulled her out of the life she was living. And he, he told her, you know, live righteously, daughter, from now on. So you have the story of Rama, which is by now complete mythology. But you have him going from place to place to deal with these beings, you know, who are dark in this way and dark in that way or cursed in this way. All these different things that have to be sorted out, which by now are just so, there's so much myth around them that you don't really understand what they're about. But if you think about the life of an avatar where it hasn't been overlaid by literally thousands of years, you realize that that's exactly what the avatar does. He goes and he finds those who are trapped in delusion in one form or another, and he acts to free them from that delusion. Whether they're rakshashas who are working against uh, a rishi, or they're an angry woman who's killing everyone who comes into her forest, or in this case where we are right now, they come to this beautiful ashram, um, but there's nobody in it at all. And Vishwamitra explains to Rama, that there was a sage named Gotama who lived here with his wife, um, Ahalya. And one day, while Gotama was away, Indra, who's kind of a a sneaky guy, um, he saw this woman, Ahalya, and he thought she was so beautiful. He desired her for himself. So he put on the appearance of her husband, and he went to see her, and he wanted to take her for his own, satisfy his desires, the delicate way they put that. And she knew that this wasn't really her husband. And she, but she was flattered that Indra thought so much of her that he would go to all this trouble. So she um, cooperated with his desire. And then, of course, now that they have been unfaithful, she has been unfaithful to her husband, and Indra has seduced another man's wife, this is not really a great position to be in, they become a little bit nervous because Gautama is a rishi after all, and we know how rishis can get really angry. So Indra tries to run away, but he, he runs into the sage Gautama, and Gautama, of course, has perfect intuition and immediately reads the entire scene perfectly. And he curses Indra to become a eunuch, so poor Indra has to sneak away and be a eunuch. They don't explain to you how that was ever settled, but we presume it was settled sometime later. And then he said to his wife, he said, for this, you know, sin that you have committed, this lack of self-control, this, you know, this vanity that caused you to behave in a dishonorable manner, he said, you're going to have a very long penance. You're going to have to live on air 
you're going to become invisible, and you're going, but you're going to have to stay in this ashram in that invisible form until Lord Rama comes to release you. And he said, the moment that Lord Rama put, sets foot in this ashram, you will be freed from this curse. So Vishwamitra takes him to the ashram, and as soon as he steps into the ashram, all of a sudden materializing in front of them is this beautiful woman who is even more beautiful because now she has done the penance required for the, for the slip in her consciousness. And as soon as the penance is done, her husband Gautama appears and he forgives her and takes her back and Rama goes on his way. So they get to the town where Janaka lives and of course Janaka welcomes them. They're more than welcome to participate in this. Who are these men? It's Lakshman and Rama together and Vishwamitra explains that they've come to see Rudra's bow and to try to, to win the hand of Sita. Well, Janaka, King Janaka has seen so many men try, but he's willing to let one more try, and so he opens the big, heavy case where the bow is stored. Rama walks right over and just lifts it up with one hand, as they always do, and he strings it like this and is ready. And Janaka, the king, is thrilled. She shall be your wife. Of course, this is my promise. And so um, Janaka is in the middle of doing a, a yagya, and he says, after I finish this yagya, then we'll have the wedding. And so Dasarata, of course, agrees, and they make the statement that whatever the bride's father wants to do about the arrangements, these become the social rules. And that at the time of the wedding, a sloka is created, and it says, here is my daughter Sita, who will ever tread with you the path of dharma. Take her hand in yours, blessed and devoted. She will ever walk with you like your own shadow. And ever since that time at every wedding, this blessing is offered the wife between the wife and the husband and the ideal of womanhood and perfect marriage is always that you would be like Sita. You would walk with your hand in your hand of your husband and follow him like his own shadow. So Vishwamitra then takes now Lakshman, Rama, and Sita back to Dasarata's kingdom of Ayodhya, and Vishwamitra leaves the story and never comes back. <laughs> he's done his part. <laughs> he's, he's brought Rama through his first adventures. He has transferred to him all of his own power. He has taught Rama. He's given him certain mantras. He's uh, arranged for his marriage. He's acted really like his guru in this story and then brought him to the point where he can go begin his life and mission. And that's where we'll stop for tonight. I never asked if anyone had any questions. I ask if anyone has any questions. Well, let's get to the mic going out. Okay. All right. Okay. That's the beginning of the Ramayana. Have a question, Sahada? I've always been confused about the presence of Rakshashas in both the Mahabharata and now in the Ramayana. Uh huh. Like, Who are they? The, the, the only thought I had was good is so big and powerful that evil has to be just as big and powerful even to be on the planet. The question is about why are there rakshashas? Gee, um, 
I can just walk down El Camino right here in Palo Alto and I see a lot of rakshashas all over the place. You just have to read the newspapers. You just have to turn on the TV. There are rakshashas everywhere. I mean, really, rakshashas. Just a lot of really evil, powerful, corrupted, ugly people out there. Yeah, rakshashas is like, they, they just exist. It's, it's duality. You, we are always being influenced, and there are two influences. One of those influences is uplifting. The other is degrading to our true nature. And there's a whole lot of power on the degraded side. They're not weak. I mean, rakshashas are a very real force, and good always is having to fight against them. Now, astral beings, you know, there's, there's these wars going on. The war goes on in the astral world, too. The rakshashas and the devas fight each other. The asuras, actually, that's the demons in the astral world. Rakshashas, I guess, are physical creatures, but Ashuras and Devas are always fighting each other. And then the Rakshashas in this world, they, they come in and they take visible form. And we're having to do battle with them all the time. They're also symbolic of our own inner temptations, but God knows they're not just symbolic. They're everywhere. I guess, I guess my question was, if this is a golden age... Why were there Rakshashas? Because it's still the material plane, because it's still duality, it's the end of Treta Yuga. So why is there duality if it's a golden age? Because it's the material plane. It's, that's why Swami said, Satya Yuga is not so great, it's just better than this. But it's still just the material plane, it's still just the duality of things, I guess. And it's also it's Treta moving into Dwapara. I, a master said that war continues. I think he said war continues through Treta Yuga. And when I realized that, I realized, oh my gosh, we really have a way, way exaggerated picture of how harmonious this is. Because if there can be war, but see, there was war um, at the end of Dwapara, but there, was, there were rules. Civilians couldn't be involved, only equal people could fight each other. You know, so the, the warriors would fight each other. The, right now where we are in Dwapara Yuga Rising is we have Dwapara Yuga Energy and we have Kali Yuga Morals. So it's really, really a dangerous time to live. So the Ramayana is at the end of Treta going into Dwapara. Treta Yuga descending, transitioning into Dwapara. So the Yugas are going down. So they, the Golden Age is behind them. This is the end of it, and it gets worse from here. But if there can be war, it's telling you that the consciousness is still... If, if there can be war, the consciousness is not that elevated yet. You know, it's interesting. I thought I had read from Master saying that... Uh, you're not safe until you get to, to trade. Or maybe Swami says something like that, that it was Dwapara was definitely... Oh, Dwapara is extremely insecure age. Yeah, that, I mean, I got that recently, and I thought, oh, oh, yeah, besides which, what difference does it make? It's not like we're going to cling to the planet and just sort of hang on until it gets high enough and we'll feel better. No way. We die. We die at a certain point, and we either come back to this one or another one, and we just go right where we're supposed to go. But just the mere realization that Dwapara is one of the most insecure ages, they say, because there's a lot of capacity to destroy and not yet the moral stability to not destroy. So I would imagine especially on the upswing rather than the downswing because the consciousness just has not caught up to the possibility. Well, actually, I think it's a pretty even deal. And when you're on your way down, you have all this power that you remember and you start using it. Yeah, it's just... You're just, you're even wherever you are, whether you're coming up or down, but you're still in the same understanding. But it really has nothing to do with us. It's history. It's interesting. 
It's interesting thing that the planet goes through, which makes sense out of what we're living, but doesn't have anything to do with our personal evolution. It is entirely and only the scenery behind which our personal evolution takes place. We are neither safer nor less safe, better or, or worse for living in a certain age. We are exactly what consciousness we have, and we just put it in there because it's the right one for us. For whatever reason, Jesus was 500, you know, 500 years before the nadir. It was about as low as it got, except it got worse. And he was a fully realized master, and all his disciples came with him. St. Anthony, they all came in there. It had nothing there, just that's how they served. Magic and people having the power to, to use natural forces and be in tune with it. Well, I was just wondering, is prayer, like in this age, kind of like magic? It's not, we're not no, 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 because prayer is related to the infinite Lord. It's not related to the material world. See, and it's... But prayer, prayer is a way of relating to realities higher than the human mind. We just try to think. Of, but prayer is not magic. See, what Puru writes that's so interesting is Puru writes, there is no such thing as magic. Magic is the memory of attunement. It's the memory of attunement and the capacity still to tune in and be able to work in harmony with higher forces. And it became magic because most people lost the capacity to do that. But it wasn't really magic. It was attunement. But then as it came down and they got more and more confused about the right relationship between man and nature and how to work with all of that, then it became more like magic because they didn't understand anymore. But, you know, the American Indians, they would do the rain dances. The, the um, gifted singers could change the weather. I mean, people could do all kinds of things that we would call magic, but it wasn't magic to them. It was just they understood the relationships of things. So prayer is a form of understanding the relationships, that's right. But you're just, it's, you're working it a little. Now, because of the world we live in, we think of it as, I, I'm having a hard time saying it, but you're understanding, you understand. See, in the highest age, you understand that it's all about your love relationship with the divinity. And in a lower age, it's about how I can get power for the ego. That's, what, that's the distinction I was trying to make between magic and prayer. Prayer is about your relationship to the divine. Magic can be just how can I get power. And so, but the origin, the origin of ma- magic, <coughs> Purushottama writes, was the same as prayer. It split later. Does that make sense? That's a pretty crummy explanation of what he said much better. Like magic. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's why we're here and not in some of those places. <laughs> yeah, that's where you're just that's where master says, Don't be a beggar. Don't go to God and beg for this and beg for that. You know, he just it's like he just disdains that kind of prayer. I need this, I need that. But that's that's Different than attunement. It's a, it's a whole subject in itself. 
know, how to, how to pray properly. Yeah. But what is magic? What is a miracle? It's just forces. In what Puru talks about is how attunement became magic as the ages descended, and that's what's fascinating. And he talks about the deities, everything. He talks about how, how, what it really was in the highest age and how it disintegrated into these things. And so it's, um, just to finish that thought, when I was in India once during the Kali um, festival, and we were in Calcutta, and every couple of blocks there was some huge statue of Kali, who's a really strange, you know, thing with the hair and the garland of skulls and the red tongue and the multiple arms. And I was just like, what is this? And we were sort of in a crowd, and we were kind of getting moved. And all of a sudden, I turned, and I had backed right up against this huge Kali statue. And I didn't know it was there, so I turned, and she was like inches from my face. It was, it was impressive. And I just said, you know, what are you? And all of a sudden I realized that she was the superconscious vision. I mean, I'm proposing this. She was the superconscious vision of some great sage who wanted to explain something to us that what could not be explained in words but could only be explained in symbols. And I thought, sort of thought, yeah, life is a lot like that, isn't it? You know? She blesses with one hand. She has a sword in the other hand. You know, she's wild but all-powerful. And, you know, some sage had a superconscious image of how all these forces work together. And then Puru writes in his book about how direct knowledge... See, we think words are so great, but words are way secondary to direct knowledge. That direct knowledge is often more clearly presented through symbols than it is through words. Um, like the cross and the joy symbol and the star of David. I mean, these are super conscious images. The joy symbol, Swamiji saw it. He asked God for something that would represent Ananda, and that's what he saw. And he said he, he had to draw it, he said, like 80 times to be able to get exactly what he saw. It wasn't, he didn't think it. It just, it symbolized it. The swastika, these are symbols and so Puru suggested, and I experienced in a very small way, oh, this is more clear for being a symbol than it is for being words. And that's how he talked about the whole business of the deities and everything Puru writes in his book, that they were the direct perception of, of highly evolved souls who then just conveyed it symbolically in many different ways. And then gradually it rigidified and people lost touch with the true source of it. Fascinating explanation. And just for the fun of it, for me, exactly what I got that day when I bumped into her. And I could, just could feel suddenly, oh, I get what this is about. Anyway, very, it's very interesting. But he did a brilliant job of explaining it. Yeah, that, I don't do it justice, but it was thrilling to read it. Yeah, I mean, she went too far. Yeah, And then you have all the story afterwards. But I think that it was the perception first, and then people explained it afterwards. Swami saw that symbol, and, and afterwards he explained it. Oh, look, here's the mountaintop of aspiration. Here's the soaring spirit of joy. Here's the avatar descending to bless us. Here's the devotee coming back to bless the world. But none of that was there. He just saw that shape. He drew it. He looked at it, and then he saw what it meant. 
And you know, I, I, many of us have worn that as jewelry, and you just wear it, and people say, that's so beautiful. Because they can feel it somehow. They can feel that it means something, even though they have no idea what it means. Okay, 